In the immortal words of Judy Brown, happiness is a choice. And we're happy to spend some time with Chip and Zay. We're back from President's Day. Zay, it's Tuesday. How'd you uh, spend your President's Day? Man, like how everyone should spend their President's Day. Not doing a damn thing. Kicking in with my wife. Hmm? I keep thinking they're going to pull this holiday back. Like, as the presidents keep getting worse, like, are they just going to say, you know what? We're not doing this anymore. Yeah. There was a time, but now now we're we're not doing it. Yeah, you can find something slimy about every president that's been in D.C. So, hey, I I appreciate any day off. If we can make up different, you know, holidays and stuff, I'm good with that. Anytime that we could get a day off or we could kick back because life is hard, Chip. Life is hard, Life is hard. You know what I'm saying? It's hard. yeah, you got to enjoy the fruits of your labor sometimes, and I did that yesterday. How about you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I uh, tried to get outside a little bit. It was, it was, you know, it was nice outside, so I did that, and, uh, you know, of course, they replayed the Lions 49ers game on oh. NFL Network. So I watched right up until uh halftime. Yo, man, that's see now now I thought the you need to go to some type of AA meeting, man, because you shouldn't be watching that. That's not good. That's not that's not good for your health, man. You trying to lose weight? Were you like stress eating while watching it? Were you sad eating like a tub of peanut butter and stuff? Cause come on, man, don't do that to yourself. That's I that's just- <laughs> I just keep reminding myself that there is hope. And then I'm watching every draft, every combine workout to see who they can put in that secondary to help keep that nightmare from happening again. But, but, uh, you know, no, it was a good day. It was a good day. Um, enjoyed it. Um, you know, football season never ends here. I know we're going to get to Texas basketball. Um, but a couple of things, we are now less than 30 days to spring football. So Zay, um, what are you most interested in once, you know, spring football gets going? What questions do you think need to be answered? Um, expectations, um, I want to see what this wide receiver core is going to look like. You know, not everybody's going to get playing time. We know how Steve Sarkeesian rolls. It would it'd be lovely if you got a chance to rotate guys because you were so deep and you felt so comfortable. But, man, we saw what happened to Isaiah Nair this past season. You know what I'm saying? Like, guys like that that didn't touch the field at all because Jordan Winnington, Adonai Mitchell, Xavier Wordy, they were getting all those reps. So now – for those guys who were waiting, the DeAndre Moores, you know, Jonte Cook, throw him in there, Ryan Niblett. What's going to happen with them? Are they going to be able to compete for competition? Because, shoots, man, the way that y'all be doing it at 24-7 Sportship, I saw the top duos in the nation and Quinn Ewers and Isaiah Bond, number one, they haven't even completed a pass yet. How we know? I love it. I appreciate that. But they it shoots. We haven't seen shit yet. 
So, again, we expect big things from Isaiah Bond, obviously. We expect big things from Matthew Golden, Silas Bolden, even though he's going to be a guy that comes here in the summer like all those dudes. I'm pretty sure they're coming here to get some serious minutes. So, yeah, I'm trying to see what the wide receiver room's looking like. That's the most interesting thing with me because, again, it's still a lot of what-ifs. Those guys might be proven at their previous stops, but – what are they going to do with Quinn Ewers? Are they able? Go, are they going to be able to get the Steve Sarkeesian offense fast enough? Or those guys that have been here again, DeAndre Moore, Jontae Cook, Ryan Niblett, since those guys have an upper hand on the playbook, is that going to give them an advantage? A lot of things to see. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, and then, you know, defensively defensively you got you got some serious intrigue at safety at corner linebacker i mean you know you've and and especially on the the defensive line i wrote a little bit about um ethan burke today over at Horns 24-7 because he's their top-rated returning run defender. Like, people think of he, he led the team in sacks, but he was he's the highest-rated returning run defender, according to Pro Football Focus. And, you know, people, you know, want sacks and, and who doesn't want sacks, you know, and all that. But one of the things that Baron Sorrell and Ethan Burke probably don't get enough credit for is their role in stopping the run last year. I mean, this was, uh, obviously you've got Tavondre Sweat and Byron Murphy, the two, you know, monsters in the middle, but that forces runs outside and Baron Sorrell and Ethan Burke kept, they were able to set the edge in the run game so that those, you know, they weren't vulnerable to just getting gashed on outside zone running plays all game. And, and so, you know, that's, that's like an underrated part of the defensive end position. Everybody wants, you know, Colin Simmons in there right now. Well, Colin Simmons, and yeah, he's putting on weight. Mom says he's put on 20 pounds. Okay, already. mama. Mama, mama bear. Let us know, moms. That's what I'm but, talking about. But is that weight like can he can he shed offensive tackles and set the edge in the run? Cause that's gonna play a huge role in who's out on the field on first and second down at, at defensive end. I think it'll be Baron Sorrell and Ethan Burke. We know Sark loves Ethan Burke. He, He's always talking about how blue collar he is and and how he sets the mentality for toughness on the defense. I'm waiting to see if he can turn into Max Crosby. Zay, he's got the ginger hair and everything. <laughs> ain't no way that Westlake boy going to turn into Max Crosby. That's Max Crosby ain't all there at all. I'm not saying Ethan Burke can't be a dominant player, but yeah. What are you Max saying? Crosby. Max Crosby just because he's from – the state of Michigan, he's 
Oh, eight mile state of Michigan. That's just seemed like that's where he's from. All them tats that he got. That's basically a black dude in a white man's body. <laughs> that's what Max Crosby is. And it's so funny. Every time I hear a Westlake player being described as blue collar, it's just like an oxymoron. But those Westlake well, guys, they produce, man. They always have and they always will. So, yeah, it always makes sense for just to go in your backyard and recruit those dudes like a Mookie Taff and an Ethan Burke and a Cole. Well, here's, here's the thing about Ethan Burke that I don't think people know because I wrote this in the Insider during the season. His dad, Zach, who is the Westlake lacrosse coach, he had a rough childhood. Like he, you know, he he was the oldest. He had to help raise his siblings. He got a scholarship to, to play lacrosse. And, you know, those are only partial scholarships. So he was working the whole time. He learned how to like do construction and flip houses, renovate houses and, and was doing well for himself till the real estate crash of 2008. And then um, his, you know, when Ethan was three, uh, his mom died, his dad had already died. And he and his wife, Ethan's parents adopted Zach's brother. Like that show, Party of Five. Like they adopted his youngest brother, and Ethan was three. So, you know, they're survivors. Like they lived in San Diego because Ethan's mom had a had a good job there, and and Ethan's dad was coaching lacrosse and stuff. And then he gets the job at Westlake, and he just packs up the family and says, we're leaving. And like Zach Burke thinks that's part of the reason that Ethan decommitted from Michigan and, and committed to Texas without ever taking a meaningful visit there because he, he thinks that Ethan is still a little bit traumatized by them packing up in the middle of the night and leaving California. And at what age was he then? He was in eighth grade. Oh, yeah. And so they moved Austin. He's like trying to figure it out midstream and was putting all of his energy into lacrosse. But then, you know, those football coaches, Todd Dodge saw this six foot six, you know, long arm. He's like, you need to come out for spring football. Yeah. And he did. And the rest is history. The cool thing is about Ethan Burke. And I'm kind of doing my whole chip shot today. But, um, <laughs> hey, you're getting the chip shot today at 120. Early, huh? yeah. uh, is that he committed to Maryland, which is a lacrosse powerhouse in 2020. And, but, as he was playing football and Westlake's winning, remember Ethan Burke sacked Quinn Ewers twice in the six, a championship game. When Mookie Taft got all the love for those two interceptions, Ethan Burke's the one who put the pressure on Ewers when he threw those interceptions. And Todd Dodge told me, yeah, if, 
if Taft doesn't hang on to those footballs, Ethan Burke would have been the MVP of of the state championship game because he was the one getting all the pressure on on Quinn Ewers. But as his football started taking off, and he's getting interest from Utah and Air Force, and it looks like he's going to get a full ride for football. The Maryland lacrosse coach called the family and said, don't sign this letter of intent because you're only going to get max. Like you're the best lacrosse player in the country. You're only going to get half a scholarship because they have 12.6 scholarships for a roster of 40. And in lacrosse, which, you know, is all title nine driven. Don't get me started, but it, uh, so like Zach Burke was like, wow, that's like the coolest thing you could ever say. And, and he was right. And, you know, for a a family, like the Burks are not, you know, I'm not going to put their business out there, but they're not like a typical Westlake family. They're, they're, they are hustlers and blue collar and trying to make it. So um, I just, his dad is awesome. His dad is, I mean, he's still, I, I bet his dad can still bench 300 pounds. What? Oh yeah. He's, wow. he's a barrel chested six foot three. I mean, he looks like he could play and he's in, he's intense. So yeah, Burke is a, is a fascinating Study. What did you think of Ethan's season, 2023? I thought it was terrific because we got to remember he was injured a lot yeah. of the time. He played hurt. You know, he fought through yeah. that. And again, with how teams played against Texas, the ball was coming out of the QB's hands fast. So it's hard to get to a quarterback when the ball is just flying out of their hands on like right when you snap it, you know, just because you're so afraid of what that line brought all year. It was the best line in the country led by Byron Murphy and Travandre Sweat, guys that possibly could go first round in this year's draft. So, yeah, for what – how teams – Went at Texas, I thought Ethan Burke was really good. I thought Baron Sorrell was solid too. So I'm very excited about what's next for both of those guys because I want to say, well, for Baron Sorrell, it's a contract year. For Ethan Burke, if he has a really good season in the SEC, I wouldn't be surprised if he was three and done. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's going to be – it's going to be interesting to see how those guys develop. Like, like I've seen Ethan Burke on 2025 mock drafts going first round. Yeah. Yeah. You Cause know? there aren't many guys who can play with that kind of leverage at six, six, and he's probably six, seven, honestly, oh, man. with an 83 inch wingspan. Like his arm length is off the chisarts. Like, and if you can play with leverage at that length, I mean, that's why Max Crosby is such a problem because he can just shed. He can push you back and jerk you forward and you can't even reach him because of his arm length. And oh, Max Crosby said it himself, John Gruden hated his ass because he was always batting down balls using that length. <laughs> like That's why I was talking with Ethan Burke this year when we were covering the horns. Like, yo, get those hands up. 
once he starts figuring that stuff out, which he did a decent job at that, but that's just another step to him getting better game by game, year by year, man. Because, yeah, you're right, Chip. He has everything, you know, intangible-wise to be a top-tier edge rusher, not only in college football, but next 10 years, hopefully in the National Football League. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm fascinated to watch his development because he's kind of a like he's a low key guy. He's a he's a lead by example guy, and I want to I want to see his game develop because those tools, those measurables in the first round is about measurables. Like the guys who go to the combine and before history is written. It's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Light it up, either with their speed in the 40 or, you know, their short shuttle or their ability to bench, you know, 225, 40, 50 times. Those guys tend to get a lot of love in the first round. You've seen guys fly up draft boards who maybe didn't even deserve it. Guys like Tony Mandarich and, you know, in the past, I think they've done a lot better job now of evaluating a guy's, you know, at least getting a read on what's inside the guys, as Vic Schaefer would say, inside their breastplate to see if they love football, to see if they are all about it, if they're obsessed and relentless, or if they're just going to get the money and get comfortable, Zay. You see the new word, phone around campus is obsessed. They got that on the shirts. You're seeing Sark put it in hashtags on Twitter. Like, right, that's right when you heard him in that presser. What did I say that stuck out? What did we all say that stuck out? What he's obsessed. That's the first thing we talked about when we jumped on air. He was like, yo, obsessed. That sounds a little nuts, Sark, which, you know, I'm sure you're going to go into detail about this contract very soon. But, yo, I need that. I, I need that. Again, like I said, I want L'Oreal walking in on you in the living room, 3 a.m. Everybody in the world's basically asleep. You up, cracking down film, watching things, you know, each position, holding the coaches accountable. Because, yeah, Blake Gideon, Terrence Joseph, hey, low-key, this might be contract year. This might be with this roster, with this uh, – Secondary crew, come on now. We can't have what we had this past year, man. I know Michael Penix is good, but damn, <laughs> we can't. That stuff, nah, man, that's not gonna be acceptable around here. So, that obsession, I need that. Yeah, man, it's on the back of the shirts and stuff. Everybody need everybody tense, need everybody, especially after Sark got paid. You shouldn't feel good after you got paid at all. The pressure should be on even more. Cause now that's what we gonna go to when you when you're struggling. Oh, he getting paid all this and he looked like that. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, generations down the line, your grandkids' grandkids gonna be Gucci. Absolutely, 
But, yo, you know what the job means, man. You know what the job means. And I love that obsession talk. I love it. I'm glad they're making something of it and it's going on through the locker room and stuff. We need that. Yeah. Yeah, well, you mentioned it. We'll talk to Chris Hummer coming up. There, there's Hummer. There he is. National College Football Writer for 24-7 Sports. Hummer, we were just talking about Ethan Burke and what uh, what he was able to do for the Horns, led the team in sacks, five and a half sacks, but is the highest rated run defender on the roster heading into 2024. And, um, you know, people don't realize from the defensive end position, yeah, everybody wants sacks, but you also have to set an edge in the, in the run game. And he was, he and Baron Sorrell were a big part of the reason that Texas was number three in the nation against the run in 2023. Yeah, no question. I mean, Vondre Sweat and Byron Murphy do a lot of work inside, but if you're not having somebody hold up on the outside, they're going to still break big games. And teams had to try to run outside against Texas all year because there was nowhere else to go, really. And uh, Ethan Burke was one of those guys that's really held up well. Um, not often you see a former lacrosse player like that transform the way he has. And he's got one of the cooler stories on the Texas Longhorn team, in my opinion. Um, he's developed into a really important piece. Yeah, and it's still kind of scratching the surface of what he can do in football. Um, but a smart kid who who picks up on it. I mean, Sark talked about his high football IQ and and his relentless effort. This I'm yeah, expecting a, a big jump from him in 24. Absolutely. And he was a if I remember correctly, he was one of the Early, late, late additions for Sark when he first got there, right? Because um, he was a Westlake kid and Mich- he was yeah, kind of before the early signing period. He got a call from AJ Milwee. He was in some English class and he was supposed to read his paper in front of the class. And he's like, uh, "Teach, I'm sorry, I got to take this call." And he like stepped out of his class because he had never really had a meaningful visit to Texas. And his dad was like, "Did you tell him it's too late?" Because hell he went to Michigan they're they're like measuring his bone density and telling him he's like a carbon copy of Aiden Hutchinson and all this stuff I mean they were calling Harbaugh mad scientist but they were they were in it and then all of a sudden he gets a call from AJ Milwee in English class and he's like okay I'll go to Texas I mean just from Texas' perspective, can y'all imagine what a disaster it would have been if Ethan Burke was a like a potential starter for a national championship team this year, and he was coming from Westlake, and Texas never gave him the time of day? Like that's the type of guy um, that Texas has to get, like a developmental defensive end. And you trust your staff to develop him. We've done a really good job so far, and I agree. Um, obviously, there's a lot of attention paid this offseason to guys like Trey Moore and Colin Simmons and what they could do, but. A guy like Ethan Burke has going into what might be his final year, just as much potential, if not more, to kind of elevate, given that he's still got a lot of room left in that ceiling. 
See, Homer, only at Westlake, where they put out a lot of D1 guys, you could answer your phone in class when you're about to do a paper and just be like, oh, hey, teach, it's a coach. And the teacher's like, oh, yeah, it's the norm. Go ahead and answer that, young man. Only in Westlake. That's why we hate them, Homer. That's why, as a Bowie alum, that's why. Stuff like that. Because I would have got my phone taken so quick in that situation. They wouldn't believe me or nothing. But, hey, that's why they – win state championships and got guys like Drew Brees and Nick Foles, you know? Yeah. It's all, it's a very natural recruiting pipeline at Westlake, right? Like they just have those same kids there all the time. Like they don't end up there by accident. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's, it's an interesting, interesting place. Well, I'll say this about this Westlake uh, product. His, his best games came in important games. Like he had two tackles for loss against Alabama. He had a fourth quarter sack of Jalen Milrow. He, you know, has arthroscopic surgery in the middle of the season, misses the BYU game, comes back. His first game back is K-State. Two sacks in that game, including a strip sack at the five that leads to a touchdown in what turns out to be a 33-30 overtime game. Um, One and a half tackles for loss against TCU. He had a sack against Houston. Those were all late game situations, had a half sack or half TFL in the Sugar Bowl. My concern about Trey Moore is he racked up a bunch of numbers against, you know, the worst teams in in the American and or the worst teams on their schedule. Like he, he didn't put up numbers against Tennessee. He didn't put up numbers against Texas. So I'm just – kind of taking a wait and see approach on Trey Moore. I hope he's everything they think he is, but with Ethan Burke, I know he's going to show up in the big games. And I mean, frankly, that's a nice place for Texas to be, right? Like you, there are definitely some questions for Texas in the interior, but going into next year, like you want more edge pressure. That's a desire for Texas. It's an obvious need. Um, if you look at some critical moments this year, um, but you do have two established guys coming back on the outside and you're hoping that Trey Moore and Colin Simmons, uh, two, I guess, new shiny pieces can be the kind of extra punch to take you over the top. But it's very possible. Ethan Burke, like somebody who I think was a very much an afterthought for a lot of Texas fans, even in the 2021 or I'm sorry, the 2022, 2021 class. Sorry, I'm getting my uh, years confused. And then he's in the program for three years and develops and he becomes what he was this year. And those are the developmental stories that I think really push a team from a potential contender to a contender. And we saw them across the defensive line last year. And I think Texas fans are just going to have to hope you see that kind of development continued. Hummer, in your opinion, which Texas transfer do you think is going to make the biggest impact? We know Isaiah Bond's coming in with a ton of hype from Alabama for obvious reasons. We know Andrew Makuba had a great career at Clemson. Who do you think is going to make the biggest impact transferring in? I think it's I think it's Andrew Makuba. Um, he was he's a guy that I think when Wright is a day two pick, like he is a NFL player. Um, he has played a ton of football. He is at a premium position of need for Texas. We saw how Texas struggled at safety at times last year. Um, he plugs a giant hole. And I'm not saying Isaiah Bonds won't be uh, impactful. I'm not saying somebody like uh, Amari Nyblatt can't be really successful in the system. I just think Andrew Makuba 
is a proven all-conference level football player in the ACC for a proven, generally at least in the conversation, national title participant at Clemson. And I think he comes home to Austin, steps in right away, and is an all-conference. Well, it's a little bit more difficult in the SEC to make all-conference than it was last year in the Big 12. But it's that type of caliber of player right away for Texas. I think he's going to be huge. Yeah, I agree. Well, so, you know, tell us about Makuba, because a lot of Texas fans haven't seen him, um, you know, coming from Clemson and your thoughts on on what he brings. Yeah, I mean, maybe not maybe not like the biggest athlete in the world. You would like your safeties to be a little longer, but he is somebody who has shown the ability to be in the right place at the right time. He has great instincts. Um, he was a, I believe, a true freshman All-American at Clemson in 2020. Am I getting my, I'm pulling up the, uh, this, in 2021, uh, 2021. first year for them. Yeah. Um, he took a bit of a step back as a sophomore in 2022, but he had a really strong 2023 season. Um, I think he is somebody who can play multiple roles in the secondary if necessary. I think he is going to be huge for Texas and he is somebody that really wanted to be here. Uh, I think he probably wanted to be here out of high school, uh, depending on who you ask. And, um, there was some communication stuff there, but um, I think I think Texas got a really good player um, in the secondary. Somebody who really covers well too. I think he had his best year in coverage last year. I think he, looking at the PFF stuff, I think he held opponents around fifty-five percent in terms of completion rate for a safety, which is excellent. Um, and I think he's going to be an experienced hand the secondary really needs. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead, Zay. Hummer, Steve Sarkeesian, third highest paid coach now in the nation after Dabo and Kirby Smart. Getting private jet, got two whips, man, just living good. What do you think about Steve Sarkeesian and this extension? 20 hours, not a private jet. He gets 20 oh, hours. Sorry, that's okay. All right. <laughs> they didn't give him enough. I mean, in. 20 hours of private jets more than I'm ever going to see. So in my opinion, he's got a private jet for sure. Um, but I think it's deserved. Um, I think maybe in a different era, you might see a coach have to prove it a little longer to get that kind of contract, but this is not that era. Um, and Steve Sarkeesian was also highly sought after by one of the most prominent programs in college football um, this offseason, or at least was in the conversation to it. So uh, that pays dividends. He led Texas to the best season since 2009. Um he had Alabama interested in him and have a conversation and that's the result. You get paid more than $10 million a year. And uh, you could strongly argue um, he was underpaid uh, for the position he had the first three years. Um, Texas kind of gave him a prove it contract. Um, school coaches at less prominent schools make more, were making more money than Steve Sarkeesian. Um, so I think it makes sense. It's not like the athletic department's hurting. Uh, they can definitely afford the Steve Sarkeesian contract, and I think he's earned it. Yeah, it's an interesting um, – the timing was unbelievable for Sark. I mean, Nick Saban retires, and suddenly, you know, Steve Sarkeesian's name is in the crosshairs of Alabama, and Jimmy Sexton is working every angle of this thing. So um, – but I think – you know, Texas showed some restraint, some 
They didn't put him ahead of Dabo Sweeney. They didn't put him ahead of Kirby Smart, two guys who've won national championships. Um, they put him just below those guys and made sure he's the second highest paid coach in the SEC um, going in. But yeah, I mean, I think people look, I mean, look, it's 74.2 million that is guaranteed to Steve Sarkeesian through 2030. And Texas didn't want to do a Jimbo Fisher deal, you know, where they're bidding against themselves. This time they actually did have a, a situation where they had to come up with the goods, but I think you're right, Hummer. I mean, I think, you know, Saban made 11.4 million and he was probably underpaid. I mean, he won seven national, six national championships at Bama, uh, seven total, but six at Bama, the things he did for their enrollment and everything is ridiculous. 11.4 million wasn't enough. Then you have Mel Tucker and Jimbo who we know how that ended. So it's, it is an interesting time. Why do you think Sarkeesian is different? I mean, different than Mel Tucker, he's already got to the college football playoff, right? Like, <laughs> That's how he's different there. Um, and and I mean, there's a lot of stuff with Mel Tucker that probably is different in that way, too. Yeah, hopefully uh, he's not. Yeah. Taking yeah. Um, I think it's hard to say a coach is going to win a national championship eventually. I think Sark would be on that short list of guys that you believe have the path to do so. But I think Steve Sarkeesian has proven he's different by putting Texas in the position. And you can just look at recruiting to kind of tell that story. I mean, obviously, recruiting is not just high school recruiting anymore. It's the transfer portal, and Texas has been uber successful there. But Texas has now signed three straight top five uh, national recruiting classes. And that's a level Texas hasn't recruited uh, since Mac Brown was here. And frankly, since Mac Brown's kind of tail end of his heyday, um, Charlie Strong and Tom Herman never got to this level. And Steve Sarkeesian showed the ability to do that even when things weren't going particularly well for Texas. So I think that makes him different. I think he's clearly one of the most respected offensive minds in college football. Um, people rave about his ability to scheme. That makes him different. And say whatever you want to about him, but I think the biggest issue we heard about Texas forever was culture. Um, you, it was funny. You just go ask a player about what's different about Texas this year. And for about 12 straight years, it'd be like, the culture's different. The culture's different. And the culture really is different now. Um, Texas had three games this year, uh, Houston, K-State, TCU, where it could have blown its chances at the college football playoff or it's could have blown its season by coughing up a fourth quarter lead. And they managed to hold on. And I don't think the Texas teams in previous years would have done that. And that's because of the culture Steve Sarkeesian set. Um, so he is different in that way. But um, $70 million to one coach over a seven-year period is still a significant amount of money. And it'll be interesting to see how long the uh, hot seat talk can stay away from Texas. Cause I think this is the first time since really like maybe Tom Herman's first season or Charlie's first season where there isn't any like potential conversation about what could be next for Texas. Even going into this year, there were some questions about Texas um, and Steve Sarkeesian's job security is just the nature of the business. And I think this contract quiets those things down for a while. What do you think is going to happen with NIL, Hummer? I mean, we've heard, I mean, everybody's got an idea, you know, 
Charlie Baker seems to be thinking, oh, Congress can help us regulate this. But is this just going to continue to separate the haves and the have-nots until we're in the world where it's the SEC and the Big Ten and whoever's in those conferences is part of college football and the rest are playing subdivision college football? Yeah, I'll be curious. I think it depends on what the NCAA ultimately gets and if the NCAA ultimately gets the opportunity to make that decision. I think there's no question we're heading towards um, athletes being compensated, um, not under the table like they have for a long time, but over the table with actual contracts. Um, I think there's a question out there of whether they're going to be employees or not. I'm willing to bet they will be long-term employees. Um, and when I say long-term, I've probably been five years. I think the question is whether there will be some sort of negotiated salary cap or not, or some negotiated system. Um, I think the model that Charlie Baker proposed was there was a floor teams had to meet in terms of how much a player could be compensated or needed to be compensated annually. I don't know the number. I think it was like $10,000, let's say, like per semester or something. Um, and schools have the option to go up from there and they can pay more if they wanted to. So that puts a floor on who can compete in college football. But I think the only way a lot of these schools, especially outside the SEC and Big Ten footprint survive, if there's also a cap to that number, if there's a ceiling, because if we're in a world where uh, there is no ceiling uh, a conference where you're bringing in $100 million in annual revenue like the SEC and the Big Ten and where they're projected to be in 2028 is a heck of a lot different than the Big 12 bringing in $40 million in 2030. Um, and schools are just going to be able to outbid other Power five, Power 4, Power 5 schools um, in the future if there is no cap to that. So, I mean, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit. I'd be lying if I know exactly what it's going to look like. But I think that decision, whether there is some kind of salary cap to this system will determine if other schools can be competitive outside those two leagues. I mean, the only way we hit the point of no return is when the big dogs, the SEC and the big 10 say enough. Um, because right now, you know, you've got what the head coach at Boston college going to the NFL. Cause he's sick and tired of, working his ass off recruiting players only to develop them and then have bigger programs with more money come in and take his players. Well, that, that story's happening everywhere unless they've got some, you know, great NIL set up at a, at a lower division. But when the sec and the big 10 say, okay, we're tired of going to ask our boosters for all this money. That's when, you know, it'll get capped. And that's at, at that point, is there anyone left in college football other than the big 10 and the sec? And, you know, these commissioners have never wanted to work together, but that it, it takes a crisis to drive them to work together. And maybe this is the crisis. Yeah. Um, I think the crisis might've pushed them together, but, some of the commissioners don't have the leverage anymore. And you're, you're seeing that now with these college football playoff negotiations. And I think what you're going to see is the slow erosion of the rights of the non big 10 and the SEC schools. Um, I think Ross Dellinger had a report today 
um, of Yahoo Sports talking about how the Big Ten and the SEC are considering asking for more guaranteed bids for their teams in the college football playoff, asking for different revenue distributions um, instead of the even numbers that are given to conferences now based on the number of participants. And I think what you're going to see is the SEC and the Big Ten push and push and push. And eventually, like the ACC and the Big 12 will have no more room to kind of back up off and they'll fall off a cliff. Um, And that's the power the SEC and the Big Ten have. And I don't think we're too far away from the SEC and the Big Ten snatching the last remaining really good ACC schools. And then you truly will have um, a separation of tiers in college football. Um, It's just, I think it's pretty gross, but it's where we're at uh, now. And the mismanagement of the sport is fully on those conference commissioners and the presidents to allow it to get to this point. And you can't really blame the SEC and the Big Ten for taking advantage because college football for a very long time has been a sport where everybody's looked out for themselves. And to think, Claudia Cohen, the federal judge in the O'Bannon case, said, just pay each of your student-athletes $5,000, you know, a semester. And the schools could have capped this thing at $5.5 million, And we never would have had NIL dictated by the state legislatures. And they all ignored it. It's and it's not like and it's not just like the five thousand, which may, maybe we end up at like ten thousand dollars each for each player. But like the NCAA had the opportunity to set the starting point, right? You could have started as low as you wanted, and that would have been accepted at that time as a grand gesture to these athletes, right? Like you would have been right. able to it was better than what they had before, which was nothing. Yeah, and it would have set the tone of the conversation from now on. And that ability has been stripped away from the schools in the NCAA, and now they're scrambling for air. And we're at a point right now where like a lot of these athletes consistently are making like a hundred thousand dollars a year. There's like, there's no going back. Like we're not going to be paid as NFL players, but like it's going to be a pretty lucrative time for these athletes in four or five years when they're actually able to negotiate these things. And I think the NCAA is going to get continued to get, um, I guess I shouldn't use that term. The NCAA is going to continue to get dominated in these situations because they have no leverage anymore. This is the first time we have antitrust from two different angles. The players who get the money taken away can say, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're taking away my right to to earn as much as I can. And the have-not schools are saying, you're pricing us out of, the, out of this. So we're suing to, you know, to bring it to an end. And it's bonkers. And no one... You know, Charlie Baker's trying to put some stuff forward, but, and I think the general fan doesn't care about this. You know, you and I do because we need to know what the infrastructure of everything looks like, but it's fascinating. It's fascinating to me. The first thing you have to do is you have to get the leadership under one commissioner and get the, you know, get college football to work together. And now it's, uh, in my opinion, it's just to the point where it's going to be the Big Ten and the SEC and any chance for, you know, the Power Five, since it's now the Power Four, coming together and collectively bargaining, those days are gone. No question. Um, and I think Jack had a question in the chat about contracts that could keep players from entering the portal. I think that is something 
whenever that does happen and these players are locked in the actual contracts time in the team, I think that is leverage that players are going to have to give up. Like if they want to get paid over the table, they want to get paid fully guaranteed contracts in some of these situations, they're going to lose leverage in terms of the ability to leave. Um, it's going to be much like the NFL model where you're signing, maybe as a high school recruit, you're signing a two-year deal where you have to stay at least two years at the school. Um, players will no longer have the agency to just enter the transfer portal whenever they'd like. Um, so that is that is certainly a sacrifice players are going to have to make. And even right now, it's it's not the same, but I think some of these collectives and some of these schools are getting a little con- smarter with how they write contracts. Um, I know of some situations where players have their like NIL money backloaded um, specifically for, let's say the transfer portal closes on April 30th. The money is backloaded to where they have to be on the roster through May 15th to get their full payout. Um, Some of these schools are wising up to that a little bit, but um, that's a, that's still a really murky landscape and not everything is like that, but yeah, eventually there will be contracts where players are required to stay on their roster. So Hummer, I know you saw the promo for the new college football video game with EA Sports about to come out. How is NIL affecting that? Because we know that's been the holdup this whole time. Speaking of Ed O'Bannon in that case, but how is NIL, you know, how are they going to figure this out to where guys are actually going to get a little bit of paper for being on the game? Yeah, I don't know what the I don't know what the number will be, but essentially it's a group licensing agreement, um, and players go into a portal. Uh, portal's probably the wrong word. They go into a system, and they just have the ability to opt in, um, and they'll get a certain amount of money up front. And then if they accept um, for that, then they are included in the game with their likeness, and that's how that works. Um, and players who do not um, accept having their likeness in the games will not be included in the game. Um, I don't know the percentages of players that will be in there. I'd imagine it's a really high rate because I think most players are just think it's cool uh, to be in a video game. But yeah, that's um, that's how that'll work. And I think it's been a long road to get to that point for EA. And I think they're still working through some of those models down the stretch. But yeah, um, just as simple as essentially clicking a box and you can be included in the game and you'll get a small monetary uh, portion of that as well. Hummer, uh, Zay brought up the uh, 24-7 sports projection of the top quarterback receiver duos for 2024. At the top of the list, Quinn Ewers and Isaiah Bond. How do you think Matthew Golden's feeling about that? I mean... No offense to Matthew Golden, but Isaiah Bond was the number, basically the number one receiver for a college football playoff team this past year. And Matthew Golden, while really, really good, is somebody who's been hurt a lot in his career and has to stay healthy to stay on the field. But um, I think Matthew Golden's doing all right for himself right now. I think he's probably fine not being included on the 24-7 list. I think I think he's fine. I think he's well taken care of at this point. And he's going to catch plenty of passes from Quinn Ewers next year as well. So, um I think whenever you see our guy, Brad Crawford, I think that's who wrote this, I would assume. Carter uh, right. Bonds. Carter. Whenever you see our guy, Carter, writing a list like this later this year, the top wide receiver rooms in college football, I think Texas will still manage to find their way on the list, largely on the strength of guys like Matthew Golden and Isaiah Bond together. Yeah. And also, this. like, not having Teratoa McMillan and Noah Fafita number one, I think is the wrong answer. I would have the Arizona combo number one right there. Uh, no question. 
but um, that is no offense to Quinn Ewers and Isaiah Bond, but uh, no Fafita and Territory McMillan are guys who have been playing together since they were like six years old. Um, I don't think there's a better QB wide receiver combo in college football. Are you surprised he's not at, uh, he's not at Washington? Noah Fafita? A little, a little. Um, and it's not just Washington. Um, I think a lot of schools in the country were interested in the combo. Um, I think a lot of schools were taking them both. Um, so I'm a little surprised they didn't leave, but I think they went to Arizona to establish something together. Um, there was, I'm sure you'll hear the story a lot this year if you watch Big 12 football, but there was a contingent of Servite high school athletes, Noah Fafita and um, Territory McMillan, uh, foremost among them, who went to Arizona to help build that program under Jed Fish. And I think there's still four or five of them on the roster that were kind of the core of that group. And I can see why they wanted to continue building what they helped build at Arizona next year. Because with the guys that stayed, I think they're still among the handful of potential Big 12 favorites next year. And that definitely would not have been the case if they went to Washington in the Big 10 next year. It would have been a, would have been a much different conversation for uh, their chances at a championship. Yeah, Hummer, speaking of Alabama and Washington, Ryan Grubb not joining Kalen DeBoer and the Crimson Tide going to the Seahawks. That's pretty interesting. Where does Kalen DeBoer and Alabama go from here? Well, they're promoting Nick Sheridan, uh, who is interestingly um, a former Indiana offensive coordinator. Um, he also was the offensive coordinator of – Michael Penix in Indiana for a stretch. Um, but that stretch did not go nearly as well as it did uh, when Kalen DeBoer was the offensive coordinator in Indiana. Um, but Nick Sheridan somebody who has been considered a fast riser for a long time in college football. Um, he, had a, he had a chance at Indiana that didn't go as well as maybe he would have liked. But he's somebody uh, well, um, he's very familiar with Kalen DeBoer's system. And I think, I think, that offense will probably be fine, um, especially because Kayla DeBoer has a really large say in it too. But I think Ryan Grubb, Grubb choosing the Seahawks over Alabama OC is another um, piece of evidence that it's harder than ever to keep good talent in college football right now because the NFL is considerably more appealing than even the best jobs in college at times for people. Yeah. Um, Hummer, the – Did he freeze? Yeah, I might have froze. I'm sorry. Can you repeat that? Oh, the chip froze. <laughs> oh, I feel better about that then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's all. <laughs> Yo, I mean, this was never happened. Clock's still going above him, man. I know, man. I don't know what's going on. He's focused, man. He's focused. I guess so. We'll get him back. Um, Yo, talk about the new playoff format. The um, – Five plus seven format. I kind of figured that this was the way that they were going to go, but you just never know. And I'm kind of curious, Hummer, with the Pac-12 no longer being a thing, what's the fifth conference we're talking about? So it's basically the same thing as it was before when it was six plus six, but now it's just five plus seven. So the five highest ranked conference champions, including group of five schools, get automatic bids into the playoffs. Okay. Um, so let's say the American, let's say Tulane wins the American and they're, um, ranked like 22 
and the standings, they're going to get an automatic bid over um, Toledo if they're ranked number 24. Um, so it, it's kind of like it's throwing a bone to the group of five, essentially, to have five plus um, seven. Uh, the Pac-12 is obviously no longer considered a power conference. So that sixth um, power five conference is no longer included. I'm sorry. That sixth conference is no longer included. So essentially, it just means there's one more at-large bid up for grabs after the um, four power five leagues, which sounds weird in its own, get their conference champion plus a fifth one from the group of five ranks. Uh, yeah, sounds like you locked into my question before I went through a fourth dimensional hole. <laughs> I don't know what just happened, but uh, I appreciate you answering the question. You having a high football IQ to pick up on the college football playoff changes. Um, I don't know what what's the most significant thing, in your opinion, that we learned today about the five plus seven format. I mean, I don't think it's anything they announced. I think it's what's been reported about the SEC and the big 10 making further demands. Um, but I mean, the five plus seven is interesting because um, as we were just talking about, I was not going to go with Zay. It does still give the group of five some hope, which I think is important to the system as it's situated now, but this is only for 2024 and 2025. This is a very short term thing um the 2026 deal could potentially look much different um the tv contract for that is still up for grabs even though there is an agreement with espn at this point so i'll be curious over the coming weeks and months and potentially years because this is college football and nothing happens quickly um if the 12 team format shifts at all moving forward i think it's a possibility that it still expands to 16 i think there's a possibility that the big time, the SEC make further demands about guarantees in terms of the teams that gets into the playoff. Um, so I think the most interesting thing to me is, and it's just a reminder that this is only for 2020, 24 and 2025. There's still a lot to be decided going into the future. Yeah. Damn. All right, Hummer. We could talk to you all day, but you know, we know you have a life. So we uh, will turn you loose, man. But oh, I appreciate it, guys. It's a uh, 78 every Tuesday, man. Best yeah. college football conversation anywhere. I enjoy it as always, guys. I'll uh, see yeah, y'all next week. I heard you talking about that weather. Enjoy it, man, because we don't get many days like this. Oh, yeah. I'm about to go plot myself outside, y'all. All right. Y'all have a good one. <laughs> appreciate you. There he is. Chris Hummer, national college football writer, 24 7 sports. Um, yeah, the uh, the college football playoff format um i think it's like to be determined what what's the rest of the story because um it's it's the four highest ranked conference champions will be the one through four seed and then beyond that it's okay what's the rest of the story yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily like that. I'm glad it's 12 teams, but for example, let's say Kansas State wins it all and Texas goes undefeated but loses to Alabama in the SEC championship game. I'm pretty sure Texas will probably be better than that Kansas State team that won it in the Big 12. I'm not saying for sure, but there's a huge possibility that that scenario could happen. 
So to have that team get a bye, that's that fourth team that might be, hell, borderline preteen teens in ranking, but again, won their conference championship. I don't know if that sits right with me. That'd be interesting to see that come about. Well, it's like the it's like the Buccaneers winning the AFC or the NFC South with a losing record. Yeah. And they get a they get a home playoff game because they won their division. So that's that's like trying to keep the peace, even though yeah. Like I said, what are you keeping the peace for? The Big Ten and the SEC are, you know, it's just a matter of time before they're running everything. So I guess for these two years that, you know, until they basically get the other conferences to bow to them, <laughs> we'll have this situation where the top four conference champions will be seated one through four and get a bye. Yeah, I mean, you're right, NFL, they do it, but I guess just with how much parity there is in the National Football League, like, there's a big difference in conference competition, you know what I'm saying? Like, the schedule that Texas has, the schedule that Florida has, looks a lot different than what Arizona is going to have to face in their first year in the Big 12, so, again, hey, all you could do is play the games in front of you and take advantage of your opportunities. But yeah, man, somebody's going to be put in that non-buy situation for games where they might have one loss on the schedule and that loss came to a top two opponent in the nation. And hey, the rules are the rules. Right, because the SEC is doing away with divisions. So you're going to have the top two teams in the SEC championship game. But you could have you know, the third and fourth place teams in the SEC with one loss. But because they lost to the team that's in the championship game, you know, and they're suddenly that's the SEC is not going to want, you know, SEC teams all bunched up in the playoff. They're going to want them spread out so that even if they didn't get a one seed, they're in the same bracket to where, they're in different seeds than their number one seed for sure. And I just thought about this, like you're going to get a buy anyway, because if you don't make the championship game, you know, like probably waiting, but the team that loses in the championship game that makes it, that's tough. That's an extra game in the conference championship, but then you got to play whatever the eight, team seed whatever that is and how that looks so they need to do away they need to do away with the conference championship games and that's i know that's like because i've been saying they should go to a a 16 team playoff since you know 2014 and you do away with the conference championship games so that you can get right into the playoff like fcs does yeah. But now you're, you know, I don't know how the conferences would decide to crown their champion. Especially with all these where, you know, the Big 12 had it where you had 10 teams. You could play everyone. And the regular season champ was the champ. You played everyone. Well, we're in the world of 16-team leagues. And 
if you don't have a championship game between the top two teams, how are you going to crown your champion if yeah. you have two teams that are have the same record? Unless yeah. they went head-to-head, but, you know, I mean, those days are gone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Long gone. So, so the conference championship, you're going to – you're going to play an extra game. It's going to be a tough game. It's going to, you're going to be at a disadvantage. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Going into the playoff, period. Yeah, yeah. I, I, 16 teams, that's always seemed a little bit much, but yeah. if you get rid of the conference championships. That's the only way you can do it. That's, it doesn't sound as bad. I mean, I know the NFL, they're probably looking at like 16 teams, like, all right, don't muck up with what we got going on. <laughs> you know, I know that's a big part of it too. But still, yeah, I don't know how they would get away from the conference championships. But if they were to do that, I'd be fine with 16. But 16 and a conference championship, nah, that's too much, bro. That's yeah. Way too much football for these kids. Yeah. Yeah, Sark was even mentioning the importance of depth. Because with the 12-team playoff, you're looking at playing 16 to 17 games, which is an NFL regular season. And we all know, typically, the teams that do the best in the NFL are the teams with the fewest injuries. Yep. Ask the New York Jets, who had Aaron Rodgers for four plays. It's brutal. Yeah. All right. Let's uh we got our man uh Hank South coming on at 215. So let's uh let's get um well let me make sure first of all that Hank is good to go. because um, I do need to tell you about Apple leasing, because Apple leasing is gonna get you into the car you really want to be driving. By leasing you any maker model of car. So they don't care. They don't care what car you pick. They just want you to be happy. You go to a dealership, you're going to feel the heat. You're going to feel the pressure. Um, and that can be rough, you know. I mean, you call Apple Leasing at 346-9977. All they're going to ask you is, okay, like, what are your family needs? What, what you know, are you transporting kids? Because here's, you know, they're going to help you. They're going to help you. They're not going to try and just sell you a car. And the beautiful thing about Abilacing is you're not paying for the future trade-in value of that car, which is the single biggest markup in a new or used car. So you're getting into a better car than you thought you could afford, and it's brand new. Some of you haven't been in a new car in forever. And look, you deserve to be in a new car. You're going to be in traffic in Austin, Texas. You need to be happy in the car you're in. 
Apple leasing makes it so simple. And if you decide, hey, I want to change make and model of car two, three years into my lease, no problem. The easy lease. You lease from a dealership, they're probably not going to let you out of that contract. So do what's right for you. Do what makes sense. Apple leasing. I've been a client for 15 years. Give them a call today, 346-9977 or visit appleleasing.com. And Brain Vault Mouthguard, it is revolutionizing the mouthguard industry because this is not some mouthguard you buy at a sporting goods store and throw in a pot of boiling water. This is a mouthguard fitted by a dentist. And it is um, patented, proven to reduce the effects of concussion. That's all you need to know. Developed right here in Austin by Austin's dentist, Dr. Greg Eckert, Dr. U-E-C-K-E-R-T. Um, all you got to do is go to brainvault.com to set up a fitting. And heck, if you can get your whole team together, they will come to you and do a group fitting. Brainvault.com and Tom McKay and Audiovisual Consultations, making sure that you have the big screen of your dreams. And you don't have to move a muscle other than to call 255-8678 and let Tom and his crew bring everything to you. They're going to bring you the best price on big screens. They're going to bring you surround sound, electronic shades, new lighting, surveillance, you name it. Tom and his crew have got it all for you. Uh, they've set me up in three different houses. They set up TVs in your, some of your favorite restaurants in Austin. Let them take care of you. 255-8678-AVConsultations.com and um, Salt Traders Coastal Cooking. I mean, if you love oysters, you love seafood, this is your jam. Happy hour every night from 3.30 to 6.30. You're getting the grilled oysters uh, for $5 off. You're getting the New Orleans barbecue shrimp. And during happy hour, dollar raw oysters. Are you kidding me? Come on, Salt Traders Coastal Cooking right up there in Round Rock. And of course, at Zilker Park from our man, Jack Gilmore, who gave you Jack Allen's kitchen as well. Um, all right, say uh, Hank South, horns 24-7, still checking on Hank, but a lot going on. And I'll I'll talk about Steve Sarkeesian's new contract um, here because the agenda came out for the Regents meeting that will uh, occur tomorrow and on Thursday. Uh, that's when the Regents are going to approve Steve Sarkeesian's new contract, which will see his salary go from um, $5.6 million to $10.3 million dollars in 2024 um basically a total of 74.2 million dollars guaranteed to steve sarkeesian through the 2030 season and um let's bring in our man hank south recruiting guru horns 24 7 um, Hank has the unique perspective of also having covered Alabama, where I've said Nick Saban was making 11.4 million and was probably being underpaid. 
because all he did was win six national championships and what was runner up in three others in his time at Alabama. I mean, it was ridiculous with that guy. And now Sark third highest paid coach in college football behind Dabo Sweeney and Kirby smart Hank. Um, Your thoughts on Steve Sarkeesian entering the $10 million club. Yeah. I I think it, you know, a little overdue, you know, he was, um, you know, he, he's, he's taken, obviously we, we've seen the steps they've taken each year. He's been in Austin um, from where they started in, in 2021 to where they finished in 2023, you know, last second play that, that could have sent them to the national championship game and maybe could have seen Texas people. I don't know. We're just talking about hypotheticals now, but uh, you know, obviously has Texas on the right path. Um, seems, you know, just seems like a guy who actually gets it. You know, we, we, we've seen issues with, you know, we, we saw, problems with Charlie Strong, with Tom Herman, you know, you know, various different things. But in terms of a guy that, you know, seems like he understands, you know, Texas, you know, the, the tradition, you know, bridging all that together and, you know, obviously also taking Texas into this new frontier of NIL and, and everything. And, and, you know, I think he's just a home run hire looking back at it all. And, and you know, he, he's certainly well-deserving of, of this contract and everything. And, you know, the uh, the Nick Saban rehabilitation clinic, you know, hits again, you know, with uh, with putting out guys uh, that, that go on to have success. I guess, you know, Dabo's not a Saban assistant, but, you know, Kirby obviously coached under Saban for so long. Um, you know, you can look all over the country, you know, Cristobal, um, Billy Napier, not that he's having much success in Florida, but, you know, the the, the Nick Saban coaching tree is is uh, has a lot of branches. So certainly well-deserving. And, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, everybody around Texas is excited for it. Yeah, Hank, when you talk to these recruits and their parents and whatnot, what do they say about Steve Sarkeesian not talking football, like as a person and how he carries himself? What are the good things that you've heard about Sark? Yeah, I, I think all these kids just, you know, he does a good job of staying in communication um, with, with these kids. Um, I think he's a really good, you know, relationship builder, um, whereas, you know, maybe, you know, I think Charlie Strong was obviously a really good relationship builder. I think, uh, you know, Tom Herman, you know, not as good as Charlie Strong, but I, I think Steve Sarkeesian is kind of that perfect mix, you know, where he, you know, they, they know where to push on the right buttons on the guys they want. You know, they, you know, they do a good job of, you know, I, I think, I think what's impressed a lot of the kids the most is kind of just the structure in which they, you know, they go about everything, you know, whether it's the junior day events or, you know, there, there's a lot to do. There's a lot of kids, you know, you, you need to stay after a lot of, um, you know, coaches you got to stay in contact with, obviously the Texas high school coaches, uh, that that's a big thing, you know, and I think he understands that. And, you know, I think he just, he does a really good job of, um, you know, connecting with kids, um, and, and, you know, kind of bridge, like bridging all this stuff together that, um, you know, a head coach needs to do. Um, and that, that's, you know, whenever I talk to recruits, they always talk about the relationships he's built with them, the staff he's put around him. They're just, you know, it, it's very Saban-esque, you know, all these guys can recruit really well, um, or they wouldn't have, you know, the positions they have. And, you know, I think that all, you know, it's all a reflection of, of the head coach and, you know, the guys he's put in place there. Yeah, Hank, um, I don't know how much we've talked to you about this. Um, Brandon Harris elevating to GM over the player personnel department at Texas. Billy Glasscock, um, you know, heading to Ole Miss. Your thoughts on Brandon Harris? Uh, taking over as GM of 
uh, football yeah. player personnel operations. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's a big move. You know, it's well well deserved. Another guy that you know, if you see Sark out and about, you usually see Brandon Harris right there with him. You know, he's even before he got the, this role. You know, he he's been he's dialed into all the recruiting things. Uh, you know, he he he's he handles a lot. I, I think in place of you know what, uh, you know, he's kind of Sark's right hand guy almost. Uh, um, and, and you know, uh, he he. he uh, I think a lot of people don't realize is like, you, you know, you see the recruiting rankings with, uh, you know, the, the on-field assistants, you know, they, they, this guy's the primary recruiter for this kid and, you know, he's credited with landing it, but they don't realize like how many more people go into this whole thing and not necessarily from a, a perspective uh, or from, uh, you know, the point of, you know, going off campus and recruiting kids and, you know, day-to-day contact. But, you know, when they're on campus, you know, having them there, organizing these events, you know, making sure everyone's in the right place, going to the next thing they need to do, or, you know, all those details, it's an army of people. And, and obviously, you know, he's, uh, he's been, you know, in, in the lead of a lot of that with, with some of the other the staff members, but um, I, I think, you know, another well-deserved promotion. I think he was actually before they, uh, they, they, they hired Kenny Baker. Um, he was actually on the road recruiting. Cause you know, you can, if you're down an assistant or however many assistants you're down, you can send personnel people, out on the road in place during those um, contact periods. So I think, I know he was in Louisiana one of the days and, and, you know, recruits like him a lot, you know, it's, it's part of this kind of the, the, this youth movement. And we're seeing a lot of these young people kind of take on these, these personnel roles or general manager roles that, you know, obviously have playing experience. He has playing experience at, at a high level and um, really kind of thrive in those roles. Um, whereas, you know, maybe they didn't make it to the next level, but you know, they, they have a spot in, in football and in maybe this is, this is that for, for him. You mentioned the organization in your experience talking to recruits. Are there schools that are not organized when it comes to setting up recruiting events and that kind of thing? I haven't heard much. Um, You know, obviously it's school to school. Um, I I think, you know, as we've seen this new era of college football, you know, like the personnel staffer, this, 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 staffing size of a lot of these major programs or at least of the recruits we're talking to like obviously you know talking to texas recruits they're not going on visits to like you know uh colorado state or like you know not to throw shade on colorado state or anything but you know they're they're typically they're visiting like you know the texas's the lsu's the ohio states like they're going to the big time program so i don't hear a lot about schools that you know that that don't really have it together obviously sometimes there's uh miscues or you know there's hurdles for some guys but typically you always hear you know visits don't go poorly very often um and so you know I, i i haven't heard too much in in that sense you know i think the neg the the things we hear about you know uh, other schools is, is typically, and this was the same thing when I was covering Alabama is like the, the negative recruiting kind of side of side of things where coaches, you know, they try to talk down on another school uh, that's maybe in the mix for a kid. And, and, you know, sometimes that backfires. Sometimes kids don't like that. It's like, you know, why, why do you need to talk about another school? And so I've heard that a little bit about Texas, you know, you, they have a lot of guys in the, at this position, that kind of thing. Uh, but nothing where, you know, this school was really unorganized in their approach. Hank, I saw KJ Lacey is at a Under Armour camp. Every time I see him, I feel like he's getting smaller and smaller. I don't know what it is. It's just my psyche. I don't know. And I get it. The comp is Bryce Young. I know Sark has a good relationship with Bryce Young. That's a big reason why KJ Lacey is so appealing. But I know he's also going on visits and still being recruited and wine and dined. What separates him? from other guys like what makes him 
such an attractive recruit for somebody like Steve Sarkeesian? Yeah, you know, I I think, and you you mentioned Bryce Young. I think one of the big things with him is just kind of the um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like on the tip of my tongue. I don't know why it's you know slipping away from me, but um, his ability to kind of create when things don't go according to like the plan. You know, he he's a guy that can kind of you know not necessarily he's not necessarily like a threat on the ground. You know, he he can run when he needs to, but you know if the play breaks down, you know he can still find a way to, 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 you know, make a big, make a big play. And I, you know, I, I think his senior year at Sarah land is going to be kind of a, a, a big, you know, barometer for him. Cause obviously he's, he's always had big numbers. He's a very talented kid, but he's not going to have Ryan Williams to throw to. Cause obviously he reclassified. He's now at Alabama or he's, he's going to be at Alabama this summer. Um, so, you know, I think Ryan Williams, a lot of those plays, you know, maybe they were short passes and, and Ryan Williams took a 60 or 70 yards. I think this will be a good opportunity for KJ Lacey to show that, you know, he can, he can thrive in that offense still and, and you know, get guys open and or throw guys open and, and kind of show his ability to, you know, his ball placement, that all that kind of stuff. But I, I think his biggest thing is, you know, he's pretty good about, uh, you know, being able to create, he's got pretty good arm strength. Um, he, like, like I said, he has got good touch. He, he throws the ball really well though. Jordan Scruggs was out there in Atlanta this weekend and he had one clip of him, throwing this guy to the corner of the end zone it was a beautiful ball and the kid dropped it. But so, I mean, he, he's got all the tools, but I, I think this will be, you know, maybe a, a good opportunity for him with Ryan Williams leaving to kind of really showcase that, you know, Hey, I'm really good too. It wasn't just Ryan Williams, you know, making all these big plays. What's his height. Yeah. Where uh, they got him at? I didn't, they haven't sent out the verified. I haven't seen the verified numbers yet. I think he's, I think he's <laughs> they ain't going to tell us. He's probably six foot. Uh, oh, I mean, man. I'm, eye to eye with him. man. I'm he's he's a little bit taller than me, I think. So, you know, maybe I don't know. Maybe it's the hair. He has tall hair. But, um, Chef, that brother looks five, seven, five, eight. No, he's not that five. short. No, no, no. <laughs> he's closer to six okay. foot. Um, but okay. I will, we need to see because, you know, obviously they do do the verified measurements. So we'll have to check in on that but no he i mean talented kid um you know obviously i think anytime you know sark and and aj milwe and the staff you know kind of dial in on a quarterback um I, I think you know these guys recruit quarterbacks better than anybody and so you know if they see something special in him i, I think that's a testament um you know to how good he actually is what uh i was a little surprised when he committed as early as he did for yeah. being um you know a guy still you know, at the time, a couple of years out from signing day, what, what do you think it's going to come down to for him? Um, is he, you know, take us inside the mind yeah. of KJ lazy. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a time about like four or five weeks ago where it was like, we were hearing some buzz, you know, because Auburn's obviously there, you know, I don't think Alabama is really a threat. Um, maybe, um, I, I think they're, um, it doesn't seem like since Kalen DeBoer's come on that Alabama has really been a big school he's looking at. That could change. It's Alabama. You know, we'll see. Um, and obviously Ryan Williams is there. I think Auburn's the big threat. Um, and like I said, a few weeks back, you know, it kind of seemed like there was some buzz growing in Auburn's favor. We reached out to him and, and you know, he was like, no, 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 I'm, I'm locked in with Texas. You know, he, he does say he's still going to take visits. Um, you know, Auburn's going to be a school. He'll probably see a handful of more times. I'm sure he'll take an official visit to Auburn. Um, but I, I, you know, Texas seems to be, you know, not very concerned about, you know, where he stands. And uh, again, I've been talking to Jordan about this. I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, does Texas take two quarterbacks this cycle? And, you know, and, and if KJ Lacey is still taking visits, 
you know, Texas is still going to probably want to stay in contact with, with some guys to be safe, you know, in, in the event he does flip, you know, obviously they have a better gauge on where things stand than maybe outsiders looking in do. Uh, but everything we've been told, you know, he's solid. Um, I, I think he's really comfortable. I think he really wants to play for Sark. I think that was obviously a huge selling point. Um, I think he sees what Texas is building. I think he sees, you know, the, you know, the, the trajectory they're going at and, uh, and that's really appealing to him. And, you know, Auburn, I, I think obviously, you know, they, they had the NIL thing going, they still do have the NIL thing going, but we haven't really seen them. I mean, we saw them lose to New Mexico state. Um, it was pretty nasty. Um, not, to, I mean, like the, it, I think Hugh Freeze would really need to show something th- this, this fall. And, um, for him to, you know, actually have a chance of flipping KJ Lacey, We'll see again. He's going to visit, but um, I think he's very comfortable with Texas. And, you know, unless Texas is like, you know, goes out and takes a transfer quarterback for post arch Manning era. I I don't, I don't think he's going to, I don't think he's looking at, you know, changing it up anytime soon. Yeah. Yeah. Sark wants those young guys in the system, learning the system. So that by the time they take it over, they are ready to go. Yeah. If you have questions for Hank, get them in the chat here. Uh, Rex St. Charles says, Hank, yeah, what makes a coach into a great recruiter it has to be more than just a smooth talker. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of it is about balance. Cause you know, a lot of these coaches, um, you know, they'll, they'll need to meet their quota for reaching out to kids. Um, and, and uh, you know, making sure they're staying in contact each week or however many times they can. I, I think it's a good balance of knowing the balance between like, you know, Hey, do I need to keep talking to this kid? Like, or like, what, what do I need to say to this kid? Are we going to talk about football? Just like finding that balance of when to contact them, when to not, you know, what kind of things to talk about, you know, oftentimes the kids mention, you know, they don't even talk about football with me. And so, you know, those relationship builder coaches, the coaches that actually like dive in and, and, you know, give, give a crap about, you know, your, your family and, you know, other things you have going on in your life. You know, a lot of these coaches will reach out to, parents and or not uh, like grandparents and, and aunts and uncles, they'll go like the whole nine yards and just, you know, making sure that, you know, they're, they're covering all their bases and making, you know, knowing that, um, you know, uh, making sure these kids know they're a priority. It was actually funny. Uh, we were asking kids at uh, the all American bowl, like what was the weirdest recruiting pitch or the weirdest thing a coach said to them, like throughout the whole uh, cycle, I forgot which recruit we were talking to, but uh he was saying one coach told him that he was talking to this kid more than he was talking to his wife. And the kid was like, yeah, that was kind of weird for him to say, but, uh, or he's like, I talked to you more than I talked to my own kids or that kind of thing. But, um, so I think, I think, you know, just finding that balance, obviously, you know, you want to make sure you're, you're showing the kid you care about him and not just, you know, Hey, I'm reaching out to you because, you know, we want, we want you to come here, you know, this, it, you know, talking to the kids like they're your friends and not necessarily, you know, they're, they're a recruit. Cause obviously, you know, the, they wouldn't be talking to them otherwise, but you know, if you can make it a little bit more, um, uh, what's the word, you know, uh, personal, uh, personable, I guess, um, that that's, that's the, uh, that's the key. Yeah. Vic Schaefer said he started recruiting Madison Booker when she was in eighth grade. Um, it paid off. She's big time, um, for the Texas women's basketball team. What's the, was it, was it Bryce Young that was offered like in eighth grade? What's the craziest stories you've heard of guys being offered like even before high school? Yeah. Um, Jaheim Otis, who's the big defensive lineman for Alabama now, that's a pretty good player. Um, He was a kid that 
I think it was 2016 or 2015 when he would, and he was like 350 plus early on in high school. And they gave him an offer. I think it was eighth grade and he blew up obviously. And, and, you know, ended up at Alabama and, and things are going well for him. Um, Dylan Moses is obviously one of the most, you know, memorable recruitments. He was a guy that freak athlete that, that blew up early. I think he committed, he might've committed to LSU in eighth grade, um, maybe ninth grade, but he committed to LSU early when Les Miles was still there. Um, and then obviously he flipped to Alabama in the end early other recruiter early, you know, Tate Martell, that was a crazy one. He, I think didn't Lane Kiffin offer him at USC, like, or maybe that was too, too early. I don't know. Maybe I guess 2013, 2012. Um, but he was a guy quarterback that, and, and he was committed. He committed to Washington, like before high school, I think. And then, uh, then he was committed to A&M. And then he went to Ohio State in the end, and then he didn't last at Ohio State, transferred to Miami, and I think he ended up at UNLV, I want to say. Um, so that was kind of a wild one. There's actually a wild one right now. Um, there's a kid in Alabama. He's in ninth grade now, but he was in eighth grade last year, obviously. Um, he uh, <laughs> he played a varsity quarterback in eighth grade for Thompson, who's like you know one of the top schools in the state of Alabama in 7A. They won a state championship as an, he was a starter as an eighth grader. Like he didn't even go to the school. He was in middle school and he started a quarterback. He's this tiny kid this time, this time last year, he's getting big now. He's actually visited Texas too. His name is Trent Seaborn. Um, but he's already collecting a bunch of offers. Texas hasn't gone in on it yet, but um, maybe they will eventually, but he's, you know, five, he's going to be a five-year starting quarterback at Thompson high school um, when it's all said and done. So I'm sure he'll break all the, all the national records, but um yeah, that that one's kind of wild. We were actually at Under Armour last year in Atlanta, and uh, he showed up. And he doesn't he doesn't look like an athlete. He's like he's he's he was an eighth grader. He's like a small kid, um, and everyone was like kind of passing him by. And I was like, oh, there's Trent Seaborn. And I was talking, I was like, this kid just won a state title in seven A as a starting quarterback. Uh, and everyone was like, oh, oh, oh. And now he has probably has like twenty offers now. But uh, no, that that that's gonna be a memorable one. And like we're still what three and a half years away from him signing anything, so kind of crazy yeah well one of the things i thought was interesting of course um for those of us listening or for those listening and watching on the texas sports unfiltered youtube channel um and those who subscribe to horns 24 7 know that hank and jordan scruggs uh put out the stampede every monday which is an awesome uh, insider look at recruiting and this week um, you looked at the commitment lists for um, rival programs Oklahoma and AM and tell us you know what stood out to you in putting that together yeah um, I think one of the sorry I'm, I'm looking at it now so if you if I'm not looking at the screen but um I think one of the big things, and it's it's changed since we actually put this out. It was our intel on it actually hit last night. Um, A&M only had three commitments when we put this out, and obviously it's early. You know, can't really fault them. I mean, Texas didn't have many commitments this time last year, but uh, uh, so their commitment list wasn't. They have no they had no crystal ball picks in favor of them, um, and they're only trending for a handful of guys. But last night they got DeAndre Ryden, who's uh, the DeSoto running back. He committed last night. We wrote in our stampede that. You know, they were, he was trending that way. So um, I think that was one of the telling things. Uh, just, you know, AM's kind of maybe a little bit of a slow start. Uh, maybe they want to see more what uh, 
Mike Elko is bringing to the table before committing. Oklahoma is loading up early. Um, they are – how many commitments is on here? I think they have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. They already have ten commitments. They're the number five-ranked class. Um, for 2025. For 2025. And one of the big ones, um, Ryan Foji was their recent offensive line commit. Texas really likes that kid. Um, so I'll be curious to see – you know, if they stay in the mix for him. But um, obviously it looks like Oklahoma's recruiting well. I think they're probably getting the same boost Texas is going to get in terms of, you know, they're about to move to the SEC. Kids are looking at them maybe a little bit more closely. Um, obviously, you know, Oklahoma never really had trouble recruiting much. But, uh, yeah, so they've got a pretty big class. Then you look at Texas, and Texas is kind of in the middle of that, you know, five commitments. But, you know, a highly ranked class um, uh already with just the, the few guys they do have, obviously led by KJ Lacey. And then back to Oklahoma, you know, they have, um, they're actually trending for a, a handful of guys that Texas, you know, really wants to sign. Jonah Williams, the the uh, five-star linebacker from Galveston, linebacker safety, um, depending on how, who's recruiting him. Um, he's a big time target. Um, Oklahoma's trending for him. And then Kobe Sellers, who's from Shadow Creek and Pearland, he's a four-star cornerback that that Texas is trying to get. He's trending to Oklahoma right now too. I think that one could go back and forth there, depending on the day. Uh, but that, that those are two kind of interesting nuggets as well. But you know, overall, um, it was kind of a fun thing to do. You know, it was Jordan's idea, and uh, you know, he was explaining how we should do it. And you know, I think we could even do this. You know, later on in the year, you know, future, uh, uh, you know, SEC rivals, you know, with, with, you know, LSU or Arkansas, not that, you know, I think Texas recruits at a little bit different of a level, obviously in Arkansas, but, you know, even LSU, maybe in Ole Miss or Alabama, kind of how they stack up to those guys too. So it was a fun exercise uh, to kind of see where things stand as we kind of get set going on the the class of 2025. All right. I'm not sure if coach 420 here means KJ Lacey or KJ, no, KJ Ford, KJ yeah. Ford and then uh, Pettijohn. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I've, I've heard – I know Jordan's real high on, on KJ Ford, loves him. Obviously, you know, five-star defensive lineman in the rankings from Duncanville. Um, I think Texas is a is – a, I, th- I wouldn't fault anyone picking Texas right now for him. You know, again, yeah, like you said, it's early, so, you know, things could change. But obviously having Colin Simmons, having Alex January, Texas, you know, that – they're certainly prioritizing him early and, you know, KJ Ford, DeCorey and Moore, the other guys at Duncanville, they, they're, they're trying to get. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't fault anybody for picking Texas for KJ Ford. Riley Pettijohn, I do. I actually placed a crystal ball pick in for, uh, for Texas in favor, in favor of Texas for Riley Pettijohn. I think that one is, uh, you know, after that junior day visit, just, you know, just catching up with him, the way he was talking about Texas, uh, you know, he and, and we were even thinking going in, you know, maybe Texas gets knocked down a little bit with uh, with Jeff Choate leaving. I think Johnny Nansen knocked it out of the park with him that visit. I, I think they love him. And then obviously Xavier Filsamy is there from McKinney as well. So uh, another guy recruiting him. But I think Pettijohn is, is trending towards Texas. He just put out a top six last week. Um, but I think when it comes down to it, it's probably going to be, you know, Texas, Texas A&M, Florida State in that final group. And I, I think Texas has the edge right now. We'll see when he just wants to decide. Probably take some official visits in the spring and summer um, before making an announcement. But I think Texas is in a good spot for him. Yeah, Pettijan, uh the nation's 58th ranked player, uh, linebacker, 6'2", 205, um, out of McKinney. Who, who else did Texas just get out of McKinney? Xavier Filsamy. Yeah, Filsamy. Yep, Stud safety that's already showing out like you were reporting. In, in yeah, that helps. Yeah. 
because those two probably have a connection. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, obviously he mentioned him when we talked to him in junior day. You know, obviously he, he spent time with him. Um, that's the thing is when you, when you start recruiting these these big time programs and you're getting the top guys, it's like, hey, we got some in-house guys you can come, you know, spend the weekend with and uh, and get a look at everything. You know, uh, who was it? Uh, Gavin Nix, the linebacker from IMG Academy, was kind of a late add to the uh, the junior day list. He came out from Florida and spent, you know, a bunch of time just with Jared Gibson and, and Jordan Johnson Rubel, you know, he was showing them their dorms or, you know, where they were staying. And, you know, that those connections can pay off, you know, the kids want to, you know, they like familiarity in a lot of these cases and, you know, you never know. So yeah, Phil me could, could help with Pettijon for sure. Yeah. All right. This, this comes in from Jack. What's, what's your uh, most prized football card? Are you a football card collector? Yeah, I do. Uh, I do like collecting football cards. I actually just sold off a bunch. Um, let's see. Actually, while we're here, I've got my card shelf right here. Uh, <laughs> I got some greater that I'm about to sell. The coolest one I have that I like right now is this Ewers. Oh, That's, man. I don't know if y'all can see it. It's autographed. That's a cool one. It's out of like 25. Um, let's see. Uh, Look at this. Getting a little tour of Hank's personal collection. I actually have a really cool Anthony Richardson card. That's out of 199. His college colors is a rookie card. Um, I got a cool Joe Burrow card. Uh, blue oh, ice. So yeah, God. I don't have like a huge collection. I do a lot of like, I only really keep like Texas Cowboys related stuff, Texan stuff teams i know really well um so i don't have a huge collection right now probably yours and gonna start working on some Bijan stuff here and soon so nice yeah, fun hobby nice yeah you and jeff well, how yeah oh, jeff is probably a bigger collector i actually uh i got a uh i found a neighbor this is like my dream scenario there was a guy on uh, our next door in our neighborhood that has like a bunch of um uh, of cards he's trying to sell and like he and I was asking, like, he, he was like, I, I need to go get it all, and, you know, we'll have to come look at it. But he was telling me he has a Mickey Mantle rookie, um, a Jim Brown rookie card. So I'm like, he was like, if you want to buy it, I'm like, I, that's just, I could not afford a Mickey Mantle rookie. Um, but, no, it's, it's uh, yeah, it's a fun hobby. And especially, like, you know, when you find people that, like, just, like, oh, these this box is in my attic, and you go through it, and it's like, oh, this is a $20,000 card. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's cool. Man, I need to uh, go through my uh... – my old cards. Right. My parents' basement. Happy hour at Chips. I'll come, I'll come, I'll come join you. Heck yeah, man. Um, Hank, great stuff. Great stuff. Um, appreciate it. Appreciate you yep. taking us on a tour of your personal uh, card collection oh, as yeah, well. That was a nice little added bonus. Yep. Um, let's uh let's do it again next week. Sounds good, guys. Thanks, All Hank. Right. Appreciate it. Recruiting guru, horns 24-7, getting it done. Just like cover three is getting it done. Cover three. This is the spot. This is, this is They do it all. This is your date night spot. This is your spot to take your, your friends, meet up, high-end food, and the place to watch your favorite team. Make sure you try the Sean Adams prime rib sandwich. Um, because it is awesome, awesome with the Parmesan fries. Do not forget the Parmesan fries. Parmesan fries are money 
at cover three. Um, all night happy hour uh, on Mondays and happy hour 3.30 to 6.30 every weekday. You're getting $5 off the appetizer menu. So get into cover three up in Round Rock on Anderson Lane. And don't forget about brunch on the weekends, the do-it-yourself Bloody Mary bar. It is fantastical. All right, Zay, let's get into the commentary. Um, I kind of want to start the conversation on Texas basketball. I know that may bleed into what uh, what you've got going, my man. No, go ahead. you are the resident uh, hoops expert on this show. But um, – not pretty, but you know what? You have to gut out a win, however you can do it. I wasn't uh, overly impressed, but K State plays good defense. I mean, they've they're the number one field goal percentage defense, uh, the number one three point field goal percentage defense in conference play, and they were they were. Tough on Texas, and Texas was tough on Texas. Um, here's my concern, Zay. You, you've got great effort from from Dylan DeZue, who just keeps getting it done. 20 points, 5 of 11 shooting. Um, not great on the field goal percentage, but 10 of 11 from the free throw line. He got to the free throw line. He gives you eight rebounds. Um I thought Dylan Mitchell was headed for a really memorable game. But to finish off on DeZue, uh, a block and three steals to go along with the 20 points and eight rebounds. Um, and Dylan Mitchell got off to a great start in this game, had six points, four rebounds, and um, two blocks like in the first 12 minutes of the game and then finished with eight points, 10 boards, um, two blocks, two steals. And, you know, Texas shot 36%. It like, it was ugly. It was ugly, but this was a game they had to win. Um, so from that standpoint, mission accomplished. The only other team that they're going to face the rest of the way with a lower net ranking, this net ranking is what's used by the NCAA tournament selection committee. Texas has a net ranking of 33. Kansas state had a net ranking of 81. Uh, the only other team left on Texas schedule with a lower net ranking than Texas is Oklahoma state. And that is a game at the Moody center. So Texas has to win that one as well. The rest of the remaining games against OU at Kansas this Saturday at Baylor, um, those teams all have a higher net ranking than Texas. So they're not going to get killed for losing those games, but those are opportunities. Um, Zay, I just thought uh, we had a lot of uh, IT Horton in this game and he hit some shots. And I thought, I thought uh, Rodney Terry took him out at the right time. I don't want to see IT Horton in the final four minutes of a game because his shooting doesn't get better at crunch time. And Kendall Weaver came in and played his his defense and and did what he does. But um, you know, fortunately for Texas, K State made a lot of stupid turnovers, like trying to make flashy plays. Um, they 
committed a flagrant foul that should have scared everyone watching it. Kendall Weaver's mid air and this dude smacks him across the face. And thank God Weaver has the reflexes of a cat because instead of landing on his back, he did a mid air twist and landed somewhat safely. But that was, that was frightening. Yeah, definitely. And Jerome Tang, as good as he was last year, which, hey, <laughs> Rodney Terry, both of those guys getting into yeah, they the, went to the NBA, NBA, both of them. Yeah, in their first year, basically. And now Jerome Tang's lost his team. You know what I'm saying? Like, when your guys are doing stuff like that out of anger, you've lost your ball club, and there's really no coming back from that. So, yes, that was a must-win for Texas, and that was a good bounce-back dub after getting just completely obliterated against U of H on Saturday, which, you know, Texas had no legs coming off of that game. You shoot three for 19 from the three-point line, only 17%. You're supposed to lose that game, but Kansas State, they also played a very tough nail-biting game against TCU, where Jameer Nelson Jr. hit a game winner, and that completely took the life out of them. So they ain't really want to make the trip down to Austin, and you could tell at times they played like it. So yeah, I'm Texas, they're in a solid position right now. They can't lose to Oklahoma State. If they win two of these ranked opponent games coming up, if they somehow finesse their way into Fog Island Fieldhouse and get a dub, that'd be huge. And I think that will solidify them getting in because I don't think as good as Kansas is, they are flawed. They're definitely flawed. Like Bill Self, he only has confidence in that starting five. Everybody else, he doesn't. And this time of year, you're going to need depth. You're going to need that seven, eighth, ninth man coming off the bench to give you something. That's why IT Horton's minutes, even though they were, you know, kind of sporadic, they were better than what he's been playing like this whole season. So I'll take that at this point. Yeah. Need him. You're gonna need Brock Cunningham. You know, you're gonna need those guys coming off Caden Shedrick. You're gonna need those guys coming off the bench, especially when you get into the Big 12 tournament and so on. And yeah, Dylan Dessou, solid bounce back game. The Houston game, that's the reason why I don't think Dylan Dessou is gonna pan out for him in the NBA. He has a chance, but when you go against those athletes like Roberts and you know Francis, those brothers, man, they're so athletic, they're so quick, they're so physical. Like Dylan Dessou just seemed outmatched offensively and defensively. Like that was a very ugly game on Saturday. Houston is one of the best teams in the country, and they completely exposed Texas to hey, you take Dylan Dessou and Max Aceman out the game you're gonna win and probably buy a lot so i like that's that's my that's okay so we're deep into the conference season everybody's got film everybody's scouted you you're playing teams you know coming up for the second time against baylor against ou everybody knows who you are and what they have to take away texas's hope has got to be once we get into the NCAA tournament and teams don't have time or maybe they have a week, maybe they only have one day to scout us that we do have two guys in Dylan DeZue and Max Aismas who can make life tough. And if we get good energy in it, performance from Kendall Weaver, Dylan Mitchell, Tyrese Hunter, like good Tyrese Hunter shows up, then Texas is a, is a dangerous team in the NCAA tournament as opposed to the team that 
everybody has scouted to death in the Big 12. So, you know, you want to, I always say, the sign of a well-coached team is week-to-week improvement. We saw it against West Virginia. They got bullied by Houston. Like, Texas looked soft compared to Houston. Yeah, yeah. It all starts with Jamal Shedd, which, again, talk about a team that's in shape. Like, you know a team could win it all when they win two games in a row in a three-day span like Houston did Saturday with Texas and then beating Iowa State the way they did last night. Like, that's how you know a team is ready. Because, again, look at Texas and how they responded. They won, but three for 19 from the field, those legs were gone. Jamal Shedd, everybody was tired for Houston and uh, for Iowa State except for Jamal Shedd and Emmanuel Sharp. That's it. Like, that's the best point guard in the nation. That dude's first-team All-American. That dude's Big 12 player of the year. Like, if if he's not, then I don't know who is. Like, the stats that he put up in that Texas game was, yeah, 16 points, 11 rebounds for a point guard, six steals, six assists. I mean, <laughs> it's comical how good he is. And what he means for Kelvin Sampson in that squad, like defensively, he's going to guard your best player and lock them down. I mean, physicality's there. Offensively, he's controlling the game. He'll get his shot off anytime he wants. He sets up his teammates. And Taman Lipsy is probably going to be second team all Big 12. Had that dude in shambles all game. We saw what Taman Lipsy did to the horns when he came down here at the mood. That dude took over the game. There's a reason why Iowa State won that ball game. And he couldn't even stick around with a Jamal Shedd. So, yeah, that's where Texas wants to be. And you're right, Chip. If somehow they could get in the tournament where these teams aren't used to playing against Big 12 teams, because, again, you're not – you've played as good as UConn is, as good as Marquette is, which you've already played, both of those guys. Like, those teams, they would struggle with Big 12 teams. They would. I love the Big East. That's some good basketball, very nostalgic, going back to the 80s with Chris Mullen and Mark Jackson and all of those cats. But, yo, ain't nothing like the Big 12. So once you get to March, yeah, man, you're battle-tested. You're ready to go. We just hope they have the legs to get there. You know what I'm saying? Rick Barnes used to hate on the Big 12 tournament all the time, which is a big reason why – Rick kind of grind my gears at times because, dude, don't ever say this. This is the softest shit ever. But, yeah, I don't like the conference tournament because my guys are tired going into the tournament. Dude, everybody plays the conference tournament. Everybody. Not one team that's gone on to the NCAA tournament has not played in the conference tournament. So everybody has to deal with it. How do you and your team deal with it? And how do you rest your guys like a Dylan DeSue who doesn't practice much so you can rest his body? You need to start doing that with a lot of those guys. And shout out to Tyrese Hunter, man. He had a really good game yesterday. Didn't shoot yeah, the ball a- well, but overall he was solid. He was ready to fight too. Yeah, like good game. Tyrese. Good game defensively. Yeah, like, yo, he was he ready was- to fight. Tyler Perry, Omadia, Tyler Perry, he was ready to fight his ass. The ref had to uh, separate him early. And then when old dirty ass homeboy took out Kendall Weaver, 
Who was over there ready to fight? Tyrese Hunter. Dylan DeSue and Ronnie Terry had to hold them off. And like, yo, Tyrese, bro, we don't need nobody getting suspended or anything before we go to Lawrence. We need all hands on deck. Don't be acting crazy, but I feel you. I feel the energy that you're on right now because you should be pissed off. Jamal Shedd embarrassed your ass on Saturday. You should be pissed off. And who do you take it out on? Kansas State. So, yeah, it was ugly as hell, but, hey, Texas – that was a solid dub. I'll take that, and we'll see what they can do come Saturday, man. Yeah, yeah, and I thought Max played um, some good defense, too. He and Perry kind of alternated off of Tyler Perry and Cam Carter, and normally those guys average 30 points per game combined. They only scored 21. Um, so defensively, I thought Texas um, brought it, and we've been asking for that. Uh, they only shot 36%, but um, look, they had answer baskets when they had to have them, when K-State cut it to five. Now, K-State killed themselves because they committed that technical foul um, after they'd cut the lead to five. And then uh, Kendall Weaver hits both free throws. They kind of extend, Texas gets the ball. They kind of extend the lead back out. But um, yeah, you mentioned it. And um, uh, what the Maquan Tomlin kid, they totally mishandled that the six ten forward who got arrested in October. From what I hear, the president of the university got involved and like kicked him off the team when it was not worthy of that. Yeah. And that has, that sort of set the tone, um, for their whole season. But that's, you know, Jerome Tang's got a, that's college basketball. Lost Ron Holland and AJ Johnson both to play professionally. Like tough titty. <laughs> gotta, gotta adapt. Yeah, right, gotta, yeah the, gotta adapt. The dinosaurs didn't do that, Chip. <laughs> dinosaurs didn't. All right, let's get to uh, the right call. Good God, right, it's gonna be a quick time. right call. But before all that, shout out to Cover BK and the Cover Automotive family-owned dealerships that have been serving the greater Austin area for over a hundred years and been doing it just to an elite rate because hey man they take care of the customer they care about the customer they care about you they don't want you riding around in that pinto they don't want you riding around in that beat up hoopty they want you riding clean in a buick or a gmc or a cadillac chrysler dodge jeep and ram the seven terrific brands that they have over there at covert B cave and they provide you with a high quality selection of new and pre-owned vehicles that will leave you satisfied. So go check out covertbcave.com for all the latest specials and inventory. Nobody beats a covert deal. Not now, not ever. And for the right call chip, we don't have much time, but I could talk about this just a little bit because it's been the talk around sports. The All-Star game was the worst All-Star game I've ever seen. I'm talking about 200 the points. Sad, man. It was sad. You know, I, I'm and I'm pro let's not get hurt. I, I care about that first before anything. Like I if you told me, OK, they play hard, but somebody gets hurt. I say, OK, don't play hard. That's fine. But what I saw Sunday, man, it's just like you could play 50 percent. Like, you could cut a guy off 
move your feet a little bit. And if they make a move, you don't have to stay with them once they get to the rim where you can test and they're in the air and they have the possibility of falling on the ground hard. Like you, you, you know, there's certain ways where you can protect the guys, but still give an effort. They don't do any of that. There, there's none. There's no accountability. I don't know who it rides on. The last time we really saw guys playing hard was when Kobe was around, but Kobe was that type of dude. Like he thought he was invincible and Kobe's just, you know, pain tolerance was probably top five in sports history, not just basketball history, sports history. Like Kobe shot free throws after he tore his freaking Achilles. Let's, let's, let's put stuff in perspective here. So I, I don't know what they do with it, Chip. I You can't necessarily get rid of it. I thought the Saturday events were okay. The slam dunk contest was horrible, very cringy. You know, the judges were bad. Jalen Brown was horrible. I don't know how he made it to the finals part against Mac McClung, which Mac McClung, former Texas Tech Raider, Chris Beard, you know, product. But, yeah, man, it, it's just I don't know what they got to do. I, I really don't. And the West team – if you look at the West team compared to the East, you knew the West team wasn't going to give a damn because you got LeBron in year 21. He could care less. The dude didn't show up until Sunday. Like he missed all the practices and all that stuff because he's LeBron and he controls a lot of the league. So he told Adam Silver, yo, Adam, I'm not showing up. All right. Okay, cool. I bring too much money to the NBA anyway. I'll show up on Sunday and we'll see if I play hard or not, even if I play. And he did, but he didn't play hard. Uh, Devin Booker, those guys, they're playing for championships. He can't afford to get hurt. Kawhi, Luka, Jokic, both of those dudes, they were grabbing ass all game. All they were doing was BSing, which was pretty hilarious and pretty wholesome. But also, like, they could talk about dudes that don't care about anything. Those European dudes, they could care less about anything the NBA does that's not just straight hoops. You know, they don't care about the parade after you win a championship of your Jokic. They don't care about none of that stuff. And it showed. So I don't know if you go back to where you can pick your teams and they're putting up crazy money for it. But, yeah, man, it was sad. It was really sad. And Larry Bird, who got honored because it was in Indiana, he talked about before the game. He was like, yo, if I had one wish, I want you guys to play hard. I want you guys to take it seriously. And look, Larry, it's just those guys are worth way too much money. The legacies, that's all they care about. So if they're not able to play in the playoffs and really put their legacies on the line there, then what's the point? You know what I'm saying? I felt like when it was Mike and all those guys in the 90s, it was more for the love of the game because we weren't comparing as much or we there weren't the platforms where you could compare. There weren't the talk shows where you would talk about, you know, oh, who's better than who, who's greatest of all time. But now that's such a thing. The media has made that such a thing. It's That's why guys don't take the regular season serious. You know, that's why they just kind of oh, coast until the playoffs. And then the playoffs mean something because they were taught growing up. Regular season doesn't mean anything. As long as you could get to the playoffs healthy, that's where your legacy is going to be on the line at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah, Adam Silver's not happy. <laughs> hey. Uh, he handed the trophy over like, you scored 200 points. Congrats. Yeah. I mean, 200 I points, Trey. 
I haven't watched the NBA All-Star game since the 1990s. <laughs> 200 points in a 48-minute game. Like, I didn't watch the All-Star game when I actually liked the NBA. But that glorified exhibition, no thank you. Yeah. <laughs> like The best part was Luca going for a two-for-one and heaving like a 70-footer that just hit all back. <laughs> Oh, he was going for the two, the two for one because there was like 30 seconds left and hey if he would have hit it he would have got it but no nah, man not even close and that's that's when everybody was just like all right this is this is wild this is wild i was expecting to see steph give us one of those like up from the tunnel yeah from the tunnel he was playing the hardest him and Kevin Durant, they still weren't playing very hard, but KD actually kind of tried to stay in front of guys, but then guys just pass it off, and their men just let them get to the basket, and Steph kind of had a block and stuff. Those dudes, out of all the ones that were on the court, Steph Curry and Kevin Durant were probably How do you think KD felt about Trey Young dribbling between his legs? See, that's because KD was playing hard. That's why it happened, because KD was actually trying to check Trey Young. Trey was like, all right, <laughs> you know. That's, and Trey Young looks up to KD. And he didn't look very happy about that. but I wouldn't be happy either. But, yeah, man, Trey Young, there's a picture going around social media of Trey Young, probably 10, 11 years old, and Durant back in his OKC days, because it's Trey Young's from Norman, used to always make that drive and go watch him play. So, yeah, pretty crazy to see, like, backpack era KD when Moms was living with him that time. Yeah. So, I don't know. What do you do, what do, you do after practice? Uh, just go back home, hang out, and play video games with my mother. That was a rookie year at, in Seattle. You know, there's a lifetime biopic of Wanda Durant. I don't know who's playing there, but I added it to whatever streaming platform I have. I want to watch it soon. I'm very oh, wow. curious. I'm very, I'm very curious to see how they did it. Hey, you know what it's called? You're the real MVP. Oh God! Sounds <laughs> like a lifetime. You're the real MVP. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. It took you how long to watch Air, and you're you're on the uh, the Hallmark Channel Kevin Durant's mom story, like white on rice. But she looks like Wanda Durant, Trey. She actually looks like Wanda Durant. She has the short hair and everything. Like it's relatable. I get it. Not sexy ass Ben Affleck looking like Phil Knight. Not Phil Knight's not out here pulling Jennifer Lopez. I know that. That's never gonna happen. Ever, Say, I don't care how many Nikes you have, Phil. You're not gonna pull anything like J Lo. Only Ben could do that. You know what I'm saying? So Zay is an extremely visual person. I am. I am. There is no suspension of disbelief. I am. My favorite rappers are the ones that are great at painting the picture and putting me into their life on their lyrics, so I could see that. Yes, that is. A huge, yeah, nail on I the I thought you were going to say your favorite rappers were the ones that looked the most like rappers. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> wonder what that looks like. Yeah, I mean. Where does Remix to Ignition fit in that? Hmm. Oh, God, what a class. To bring, it, to bring it all full circle. Bring it all full circle. Um, 
I don't know, man. That damn Robert R. Kelly. So talented, yet such a creep. All right, so the NBA All-Star Games, eh? do you actually look forward to watching it? No, not really. But I, I do. I like seeing the camaraderie. I like seeing, like, Durant and LeBron chop it up or watching Jokic, well, Luka hang out and have fun. Would they go to a skills competition like the Pro Bowl has become? I mean. That's what Saturday's for. Like the three I know. Out. Yeah. The problem. They're trying. But those guys, the three-point contest, that was the best event. That's always the best event because those guys are actually shooting. You know, they're, they're actually trying. And that's when Steph was up against Serena? Sabrina. Sabrina? Yeah, Sabrina Inescu. Yeah, she did well. Yeah, she did really well. Um, did she have to shoot the girl ball or did she have to shoot the guy ball? See, see, you and Trey. Trey's always talked about lowering the rim for WNBA to eight feet. And you're out here talking about shoot the girl ball or guy ball. Kenny Smith was on that sexist shit too. He was getting killed. He said some wild stuff about that too. Like, oh, it's not legit. Let her shoot at the WNBA line and this and that. Like, she was three points short of Steph Curry. She would have been tied with Dame Lillard, who actually won the three point competition. And she shot she from the. She shot from she the, the NBA three. Was yeah. cash twenty six. Was cash beautiful form. Has her own shoe, one of the most popular shoes, not only in women's basketball, but in men's. Multiple NBA players who have their partnership with Nike wear Sabrina Inescu's shoe. All right, here's a question for you, too. Is Caitlin Clark likable? Like, she comes off as squirrely to me. Like, she's, she's the face of women's college basketball, and she comes off as a little squirrely if she was a guy we'd say douchey are you saying she has resting bitch face at least okay like that whole thing where the fan came and she's like oh my my ribs it's like dude they tried to hug you wait zay you didn't answer the question did did the three-point shooter did she shoot a girl's ball or a guy's ball yeah she shot a girl's ball Girls ball, okay. But she shot oh, it from the NBA. Three. NBA really I would good. like to say that my comment about, and I realize this isn't realistic because the infrastructure of basketball is in place and rims are just 10 feet. It is what it is. I say that as somebody who watches men's and women's volleyball and sees how beneficial the lower net is for the excitement of the women's sport, how it makes it as exciting as the men's sport, some ways more exciting. So this would actually be to the benefit of women's basketball. It's never going to happen, but it is interesting that they play with a smaller ball. So they at least get it in a sense. And I guess the is the women's three-point line shorter than the NBA three-point line? Yeah, but it's not that much shorter. It's just what the college three is. So they do a version of it. They're just they're where they where they are uh deciding to go smaller, I guess, is isn't exactly the solution the solution is a shorter rim but they just can't do that yeah and yeah i hear you and what you're saying chip caitlin clark she has like a luca feel for me to Mm. where she's still cool as hell but yeah she could be a little squirrely (laughs) and and she's not like they want 
the face of women's basketball to always carry a certain grace and be very feminine off the court. And she's not that either. She's kind of like Sue Bird, which Sue Bird just talked about it recently, how much pressure was put on her when she first got to the league because she didn't come out as gay yet. You know, so that's. Bird was attractive, though. Yeah. Sabrina Sabrina seems to have a decent personality. No, she seems nice. Absolutely. But based on the, you know, women's college hoops, I I don't know. See, I'm with JD. That, That whole flop thing after the fan ran on the court was like, come on, Caitlin. Give it a rest. <laughs> See, man, I might be biased, but if that's a man, that's a dude, I'm like, all right, that's a little much. But when I see a woman do that, I'm just like, oh. <laughs> that's not surprising that she, oh. Like, know? I'd expect Luca to flop like that. I'd, I'd expect all the Euros to flop like that. Manu, you know. Uh, you know, you know, she tried, she you tried know, to sell it. She tried to make it see, you know, those guys get up and they're like, she was like, oh, my like, you know, who has a little bit of that in him and he's not a flop necessarily as much as somebody who just hits the ground too much. And I think the league is starting to figure this out. Kendall Weaver. He hits the ground too often. He falls down way too much. And it seems yeah. now I know part of it is him playing really fast. And so it's just. <laughs> hard to stay upright at times when you are playing that fast, but I see him almost intentionally hitting the ground at times. It's not total Dwayne Wade. Cause he doesn't have the slide 10 feet across the floor to make that flop look real pretty, but he does hit the ground enough that I'm wondering if he's starting to get that reputation. If not this year, he will certainly establish it next year. Well, and last night he got, he almost got killed on that flagrant two foul. Terrible play by that Kansas State player. He should be suspended for a couple games. That was completely unnecessary. Jerome Tang's lost his guys, man. When you see stuff like that, you've lost your team. Because that shit. The entire night that they didn't give a shit, with the exception of Tyler Perry, who just straight up ball hogged it at the end of the game and got chewed out by Tang, too. Yeah, yeah. Me and Chip were talking of that because Jermaine Nelson Jr. at TCU, he hit that game winner on them, which completely just wiped out their March Madness chances and all the shot like that to do it. Eight like, away from like 23 feet, hits with 1.1 second left. Just a absolute colonoscopy shot right there. Yeah. But yeah, Kendall Weaver. I'm interested to see his progression these next few years because, gosh, he has to develop some type of outside shot. He will. Well, he's I like, know. I, I hope he does because, again, the form looks good. It's just – Jeff Barker pointed this out. He was a 40% three-point shooter yeah. at UTA. That's what that's I'm saying. That, that's what's confusing. Like, what yeah. – What's changed? I mean, obviously, the level of competition, guys are closing out a lot faster than they did in the previous league that he was in. But No, it's in his head. It's in his head. It's something, you know, if you're Rodney Terry, you got to figure that out because that was a big pro for why you recruited him. That, okay, this guy's going to come in and shoot the ball well for us. Like, he's not even looking at the rim. 
You know, he'll take one. And if that's well, all, he'll look at it more than Dylan. Dylan Mitchell, they were leaving him alone. Yeah. Like he's got to learn how to hit an eight foot bank shot because they were giving him that. And then he's passing it up, giving it to Tyrese Hunter, who's then suddenly got two defenders on him. And he's taking the same 12 footer with two guys on him instead of Dylan all by himself. Yeah, it's hard when guys are just letting you go and they're saying, all right, you beat us. Because now you're in your head like, damn, they're really disrespecting me like this and leaving me open. You but know? saying he hit like 22 of 25 threes at the combine last year. Like he was shooting out of a rack. Yeah. But still. That's, I mean. That's a huge difference, man. That's. That's a huge difference. And, yeah, you're right. Like, I thought he was going to be a way better shooter than he was his freshman year. But, yeah, that's – Just, like, case. 10 to 12 feet. That's all he needs. He needs he to have – it. He shoots it. Just got to knock rushed. it down. And, again, yeah, that's another man. form that's not bad. This lefty shot, it's not bad form. It's not like, you know, Tyrese Halliburton's form, who's a really good shooter – but it's nothing like that. Like it's something that has a lot of promise. But well, he hit that turnaround baseline jumper in the orange white game. I was like, Oh, this Dylan Mitchell is going to be fun to watch. Cause this guy's clearly gotten confident in his shot. It's gotten worse as the <laughs> season has gone on. That can't happen. Legs, man. But... All right, fellas. I gotta get up out of here. But their free throw shooting sucks too, Zay. Yeah, it wasn't good, but they made more free throws than Kansas State shot, and that was the difference in the win yesterday. Always look at that college basketball, man. If you can make more than the other team shoots because you don't get many possessions in the college game, that team always has a huge advantage over the opposing team, and that's what Texas had, and I thought that was a big part of that win last night. Do you think it's accurate that teams that shoot free throws well – are they're a confident team? Yeah, because you want to drive. Free throws are a sign of confidence. Yeah, because you want to drive. Fun. You want to attack the hole. Like you're attacking yeah. with a purpose. Like yeah, absolutely. Because Avery Bradley was a really good free throw shooter in high school, but he was part of that what 2017 team or no no like that team that that got off to the 17 and 0 start, mm. and then Barnes just burned it to the ground because like two guys wouldn't. Jacobin Brown wouldn't play defense the way he wanted. I'm like, Rick, you, you're 10 deep. You're, this team loves each other. They love Jacobin. Just because he's not playing the kind of defense you want, it's going to be okay. And he burned that team to the ground. Avery Bradley was like, get me out of here. Yeah. This is the last thing I'm going to say before I got to go, but it was between Jacobin Brown and my former teammate at Bowie High School, former four-star player, Jeremy Green, who ended up going to Stanford. And they didn't think Jeremy had enough wiggle in his game where he could beat guys off the dribble like Jacobin did. But Jeremy was way more coachable because he came from under my dad while Jacobin was getting kicked out of games in Port Arthur. So, yeah, as good as Jacobin was, he's one of my favorite players in Texas history because I love the ignorance that he brought, and that's the only really highlight they had during that time. But, yeah, man, that's that was the wrong move. 
to this day. That was the wrong move. They should have took Jeremy Green. He would have fit in way better, more of an A.J. Abrams, a bigger A.J. Abrams, because he was that good of a shooter, and he would have been more coachable, and he was a defensive player, too. Didn't Jacobin help Texas win at Fog Allen under Rick for the first time? I'm not surprised. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. I'll have to go back and look at that. All right, y'all. All right, this is A.